0: reading this morning is taken from John chapter 21 verses 1 to 19 and is to be found on the Church Bible on page 1687. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathanael from Cana in Galilee, The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals, with fish on it, and and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumour spread among the brothers that this disciples would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Hello and good morning, Southside. Happy Easter to you. It's great to see you this morning. My name is Brad, I'm a student minister here. Uh, I'm really excited to be able to share with you this morning. But before I do that, uh, can we pray together and, uh, and talk to God uh, about, about his word to us? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, it is a, a great thing that you are not uh, a distant God. You're not a God who is absent. Uh, you're not a God who is cold. Lord, but you're a God who interacts with us, who has reached down into our world you're a god who speaks to us lord we pray that uh, through your word this morning that you would be working here and speaking to each of us that we might know you better that we might know ourselves better and we want know more about what life is uh, before you and we pray this in jesus name amen if I mention the word history to you, I wonder what your response would be. Uh, I, I imagine that the subject of history kind of uh, uh, evokes a, a range of responses in us. If you had a grade eight history teacher like I, like I did, you might think I never want to think about studying history again in my life. Uh, on the other hand though, you might be, you might be a, a history buff. You might love history. You might, you might watch all of those SBS documentaries where they dig up paddocks and find broken pieces of vases and you might love that. You might share every historical piece of tidbit information with anyone who will stand still for long enough. Uh, if, if that's the case, how important is history? What, what does it mean, actually? What does it do for us in real life? It seems that history uh, is is pertinent to us for one of two reasons. This is this is my thinking. Firstly, if an event was momentous, if it, if it was big, then we know about it. I only have to say the word Titanic, and automatically we we know what I'm talking about. You know, it's not the only ship that has ever sunk, but it is momentous because of its size and the size of the tragedy just its sheer bigness, we know it's kind of shaped our fascination with disasters. It, it has magnitude. On the other hand, I only have to say the word Gallipoli, and we know automatically what I'm talking about. You know, it, wasn't, it wasn't a momentous or pivotal campaign in World War I as such, but to us as Australians, it's meaningful. It's shaped our identity. It, it has meaning. And so magnitude or, or meaning is kind of how we determine the relevance of a historical event for us. And so what difference does Easter make to us? We get four days off, which is nice. What difference does it make to everyday life, though? You know, when you wake up tomorrow, what difference does it make that Jesus rose from the dead 2,000 years ago? Does it have any magnitude or meaning for us today? A passage we're looking at today, it seeks to provide an answer for that, uh, that something happened, that John, the man who wrote that, he says that it does have a bearing on our life today. And so like all good stories, John's account, it starts with the setting. So verses 1 to 3, we're told all about where it happened, who was there, what they were doing. The, The most striking thing about the setting is that it is just so run of the mill it's a very everyday scene it's it's just so real and so who was there there's seven men listed the disciples of jesus two of them aren't even listed by their name they're just a couple of blokes who were there but there's seven of them there and they're they're the disciples of jesus they're the usual suspects throughout john's book we're told that this account involves real people with real names, with real nicknames, with, with real families, with real hometowns. And where did it happen? It happened by the Sea of Galilee, a, a real everyday place. You can go there today. And you know, they're back, this is where these men are from. They're back home. And finally, what are they doing? Well, these blokes, they, they get home and they're fishermen and they're kind of at a loose end. So what do they do when they're at a loose end? They, they go fishing. And uh, like most fishing trips I've been a part of, uh, they fish all night but they don't catch anything. That's the way it goes. However, this, this isn't recreational fishing. This isn't a, a, a group of mates standing around, you know, rod in hand, swapping stories about hey, what they remember Jesus doing. No, this is, this is proper. This is net casting and dragging it in fishing. This is hard, wet, tiresome work. I don't care what sort of work you do. They did it all night. So no matter what you do, if you're doing it at 3:30 in the morning, it's, it's, that's hard. It's difficult. And so these are real men with real calluses, with real fatigue and real frustration. Our setting is real, just very every day. But then in verse four we see, Jesus turns up, and it's not going to stay every day for much longer. They don't recognize Jesus straight away. But he asks them in, in verse 5, he says, "'Friends, have you caught anything?' Now, remember, they've been out there all night, and I think it shows their patience that they answer this stranger who asks them if they caught anything simply with no, rather than, "'Why don't you mind your own business, random stranger on the bank?' But this is Jesus, and, and Jesus can only get away with what he says next to them, and he says, "'Oh, why don't you throw, throw the net out the other side of the boat?' Honestly, what difference is that going to make? But that's just the thing. It, doesn't, it wouldn't make any difference normally, but, but this is a miracle. They pull in a record catch. It's, it's nothing short of a miracle. On top of that, this net full of fish, it's strained, but it doesn't break. So this is two miracles. These disciples then realise that this is Jesus, and they end up sitting around eating breakfast with him on the shore later on. And so placed in this setting of the everyday is the otherworldly. It's the count we're looking at. It's the overlapping of the ordinary with the kind of extraordinary. It's a very real, very natural morning, but that becomes laced with the supernatural when Jesus turns up. And so what's going on here with this overlap What do we learn from this account? The first thing, John is making a statement about the truthfulness of his story, the accuracy of what he's saying. This isn't John just telling us a story. This is an eyewitness account. John's saying that this very real morning next to a very real lake, seven very real fishermen ate and spoke with and saw the very real resurrected Jesus. It's not that they saw him from afar, so they might have been mistaken that it was Jesus. No, they go ashore and eat with him. It's not that one of them happened to see Jesus. That could be a hallucination. No, there's seven of them. It's not that Jesus was some sort of spirit or ghost. No, he's sitting down, eating, serving them. He's doing real everyday things. And it's not someone acting like Jesus. It's not like Jesus' stunt double. No, there's the miraculous catch of fish to show that this is the Jesus who is doing all of the miracles before. He did an identical miracle like that a time before then. And so this is not a dream. This is not a fairy tale. This is an eyewitness account of the real Jesus. We have to take this account seriously. It's kind of it's illogical. It's historically reckless for us to dismiss the resurrection. It's testified by, by these men. And so this overlap, it presses us towards seeing the magnitude of what's going on here. If we look back over the span of history, you know, there's been some amazing human advancements, some, some achievements, but has anyone beaten the grave like this? You know, sure, we've increased life spans, we can keep people alive. But has anyone come back from the dead after being dead for three days? No. It's, Jesus is the standout man in history. Our our greatest enemy, death, the thing that looms over us, that hunts all of us down, is overthrown by Jesus. If this isn't magnitude, then nothing is. This picture of seven men eating breakfast with the resurrected Jesus, it beckons to us today calls to us. This shouldn't be ignored. This has magnitude. This is well worth having a long weekend to ponder over, to allow ourselves to be moved by that magnitude. And so this breakfast, it's it's a nice scene on the beach... Wouldn't that be a great way to end John's book? You know, if this was a Disney movie, we would pan out now. There's a victorious Jesus sitting around with the disciples, sunrise in the background. It's, it's beautiful. That's the way books and stories should end. But of course, life is not a Disney movie. This is the Bible's not written by Walt Disney. Not that he writes them anymore. But... What happens here, rather than panning out, it actually zooms in. It zooms in on one of the disciples, on Peter. In doing so, we're going to get an up-close look at humanity. We're going to see that realness that we saw earlier, but it's going to continue in the form of how Jesus works within the human being. And so what do I mean by that? Well, Peter is sitting there around the fire that morning. There's actually... There's an elephant in the room, or an elephant on the beach, as it were. It's not really clear from just the passage we read, but if we follow the story of John the whole way through, we see that Peter actually has, he has a real issue. He's, he's sitting there with Jesus. safe to say he would have been excited to see Jesus, reunited with him. But we also see that he's got some real turmoil with meeting Jesus as well. You see, the night before Jesus died... He warned his disciples what was going to happen. He said, I'm, I'm going to die. And Peter, this is in chapter 13, verse 37, 38, Peter heroically says, Lord, why can't I follow you? I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. And we see as that night progresses, find that Peter is not so heroic. Chapter 18, he indeed denies that he even knows Jesus and he does it three times. Peter disowns Jesus. In case you're wondering, that's, that's a big deal. Jesus is God and Peter knows that. There's kind of this suppression of the fact of the friendship and fellowship with God. This, this is serious. And John adds couple of interesting details there. The night that Peter disowns Jesus, he's standing around a fire warming his hands when he does it. As standing around a charcoal fire uh, is what it says. Another, another version of the Bible says a charcoal fire. The word that John uses there, it's an unusual word for fire. It's only used twice in the whole New Testament. Once there, where Peter's disowning Jesus, warming his hands... And the second time is in our passage when Peter walks up and sees a fire. So Peter jumps out of the boat, we read, enthusiastically goes to the shore and he gets to the shore and he sees that fire. Here we see that there is a reminder to Peter, oh, that's right, I'm, I'm that disciple. I'm, I'm the denying disciple. And so we're told that Peter is... is is hurt, he's is in turmoil here. I wonder if you can imagine how Peter would have felt that morning. To be, to be stuck between the awe of God, but also knowing that he isn't who he should be, who he wants to be. I wonder if we can kind of identify with, with that guilt in a lot of ways of not being what we know we should be. Uh, a couple of years ago, I woke up in the middle of the night uh, with pain in my gut. It wasn't terrible at that stage, so I, uh, I, I went off to college that day. kind of increasingly got worse during the morning, and I mentioned it to some of my classmates uh, that I had a pain, and they said, Brad, you should see a doctor. Well, I thought that was that was way too, too dramatic, so I said, no, I'll be fine. It's probably just something I ate. I'll just go and get a hot curry for lunch, and I'm sure it'll all work itself out. Uh, Long story short, the pain got worse as the day drew on and uh, I ended up spending that night and another night and a day in between in hospital with appendicitis. It turns out I needed a surgeon, not a curry, to fix this. To make, uh, to make me better, I needed a surgeon. I needed someone to actually inflict quite a lot of trauma on me to take part of me out to make me better. And so Jesus, speaking to Peter, he confronts him And Jesus is like a surgeon here with Peter. He he cuts Jesus, but in order to restore him. And so how does Jesus do it? He does it with, with questions to begin with. His questions are simple, but they're surgically sharp. So verse 15 we see, when they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He's calling him Simon, that's Peter's other name. Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? We're not told what the more than these things are, but it's kind of safe to assume he means, do you still think you have that heroic love for me? Do you still think you're the most eager one to throw your lot in with me? And Peter answers, yes, I I do love you, Jesus. But this time it it lacks that bravado that it had before, that self-confidence that I'll be with you, Jesus. The third time Peter's asked, he is cut. The the questions do their job. Verse 17, the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. kind of appeals just to the fact that Jesus knows all, all things. And so in asking these questions, Jesus reveals to Peter his frailty. Uh, that, that Not just that he's frail in that he has a kind of chink in his armour, but a frailty in his character that led to him denying Jesus. Uh, that his darkness, his weakness in actually turning away from God. And so Jesus shows him that this darkness dwells within him. Peter needs to see his sin definitely, see his brokenness, that darkness. But notice that Peter does, uh, Jesus doesn't just cut Peter... No, he heals him as well. Jesus acknowledges Peter's love and faith in him. After each question, after each response, Jesus gives Peter a command. So the final words of verse 15, 16 and 17 are, uh, Jesus says, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. That kind of seems like a really cryptic thing to say. But this is actually Jesus saying, I understand, I, I, I forgive you. You're no longer that disciple. You're no longer the denying disciple. No, you're going to be my shepherd. I'm going to entrust to you my most precious, most valuable thing, most vulnerable thing that I have, my sheep, which Jesus is talking about his people. And he's saying, you're not cast aside, Peter. You're actually brought in. You're not demoted. You're promoted to being my shepherd. And so, yes, You have a darkness that you need help with, but he's to also see the depth of Jesus' love here, his mercy and his forgiveness. He has to see the the depth of Christ's embrace of him as well. And so Jesus says one more thing. He says, Peter, you're actually going to die as a prisoner. You're not going to retire in an old people's home and die in your sleep. No, what lies ahead of you is a forced, a violent death. Now, that doesn't seem... So encouraging, I don't think. But what's actually going on here is that the, the Jesus is assuring Peter that in a sense, your path is going to follow mine. Jesus says, I died a forced, violent death and so will you. We have a place together. And you're never going to deny me and run away from me again. You're going to go all the way. You're going to follow me to the death, literally. Literally. And so the direction of Peter's life is toward Jesus. It's with Jesus. He's moving and and growing more and more all the way. Peter sees the darkness of his sin, the depth of Jesus' love and the direction for his life. Jesus, the surgeon, kind of sews Peter up now and he's ready to live the rest of his days. He's having this new, new life with Jesus. You see, the the Bible is not backwards in coming forwards about what life consists of. It makes this claim that true life is possible, not just existence on earth, but life. And it comes through that type of surgery that Jesus does, what we saw happen with Peter. This life is for us today too. And so just like Peter, Jesus would have us acknowledge that we are frail and broken. That we too have a darkness that seeks to deny God, to suppress the fact of our association with God. In case you didn't know it, it's an enormous deal to do that. You don't suppress God and get away with it. And so Jesus would have us admit that darkness, admit our sin, but not so we despair, but so that we see that we need someone to take that away. So we see we need a saviour. And so he'd also have us see the depth of Jesus' love. He's willing to take away that darkness, he's willing to be that saviour, to take the punishment for that suppression of God. His death on the cross is that punishment. Jesus says, I'm willing to absorb all of that for you. I'll fix this if it kills me. That is the depth of Christ's love. But remember, Jesus didn't just die, he rose again. It shows that this is someone who knows what they're talking about. Only God is bigger than death. And if Jesus says he can completely pay for my sin and my guilt and take it away, what can I do but trust the one who comes back from the dead? And this is the response that he asks for. That trusting, to trust that he is the saviour. That he is your saviour. That your direction in life would be with him, towards him, toward life. And see, in this we can see that this has magnitude, definitely, that Jesus would rise from the dead 2,000 years ago, but it has meaning for us as well. The meaning is for us today. Yeah, come this afternoon or tomorrow or Tuesday when the holiday is over, Jesus meaningfully saves us from sin like no one else can. He, he loves you like no one else can. He gives you direction like no one else can. Do you see Easter having that sort of meaning for you? Now, have you, have you ever thought, I do need a saviour? I do, I do see the depth of this loving offer of Jesus. I do want to trust that he can set me in the right direction toward God. Now, wouldn't it be a great day this Easter Sunday to do that, to trust, to accept the magnitude of the death and resurrection of Jesus and to trust in its meaning for your life? You know, finish now by praying. And uh, I'm going to pray a prayer. And it's for anyone who said, I realise that I don't actually trust in him. I don't trust the death and resurrection of Jesus, but I want to. And uh, I want to trust that Jesus does pay for my denial of God and I want to turn and head in his direction. This prayer isn't for everyone, but it might be really fitting for you today. So the prayer will go... Dear Jesus, I see that I've denied you. I'm sorry for that. And today I want to change that. Thank you that dying and rising again means that I can be made right with you. Thank you that you give me new life in a new direction with you. Help me now as I start on this journey with you. Amen. So let's let's pray together. Dear Jesus, I see that I have denied you. I I am sorry for that. Today I want to change that. Thank you that by dying and rising again, you offer that I can be made right with you. Thank you that you give me new life in a new direction toward you. Help me now as I start on this journey with you and toward you. Amen. In your service sheet uh, this morning, you should have got handed a little a little card. Uh, I've been, it's called a connect card. I've been doing a lot of talking this morning, but this is the opportunity for you to, uh, for us to hear back from you. And so, uh, if you have anything that you'd like to say, if you want to respond to something, if if you'd like to let us know how we can pray for you, now's an opportunity to jot down that stuff on that card. And uh, I'll give you a few minutes to, to fill that in now. Thanks, heaps.